Hello again, and welcome to Knowing God with Heart and Mind, the virtual church classroom led by me, Pastor Dan, and uh, it is our weekly discussion of Bible topics, the, the doctrine of the church, so forth. It is uh, a time for us to get together for what we might have done in a church classroom somewhere if we could all get together in one place at one time. And uh, it's a real pleasure to share this time with you wherever you are in the midst of whatever you're doing. We are presently studying some material uh, from the Christian Believer course produced by Cokesbury and written by J. Ellsworth Callis. We are on lesson number 20, God's Called Out People. And uh, this is a lesson about the church, that is the capital C, Church Universal. And so we'll get into that here in just a minute. But uh, for now, it's uh, time to just check in on the matters of the week. I'm happy to report that there hasn't been any horrible news coming across the airwaves. But then again, that doesn't really mean a whole lot because... uh, Every day, things happen that are dramatic and difficult for somebody somewhere. You know, for example, I have uh, an acquaintance whose wife has suddenly taken ill and turns out she's in the final stages of cancer. And uh, just today, as I record this, they're talking about the imminent threat of wildfires in California to uh, a highly populated area. And uh, there's also discussion of the implications of moving the uh, Israeli embassy to Jerusalem and declaring Jerusalem the actual capital of Israel. And uh, yeah, you know, there's always something to fret over. But we are people of hope. And uh, in a week or two, we're going to be talking about our blessed hope, and we'll be able to discuss it more. As I record this, it is the Feast of St. Nicholas Day, and here in Jasper, Indiana, it is a long-held tradition for the children to receive stockings filled with little treats and toys on this day. And I met with children from our preschool today who informed me about some of the little things they'd gotten, and they told me that St. Nicholas had come. And uh, I think it's really sweet and old-fashioned and very German, which is what uh, Jasper's all about. You know, we're all about these uh, old-world traditions, and it's a, it's a fun place to live because of that sort of thing. Uh, it's also kind of amusing to me because as I was talking to the children, I got the distinct impression that they don't think of St. Nicholas as the same person who will visit them on Christmas morning that they would refer to as Santa Claus. But I will say... To the credit of their parents and to the teachers of our preschool at Shiloh United Methodist, there is a clear understanding that this Christmas season is about Jesus Christ, that St. Nicholas and even Santa Claus gives the gifts of the season as an imitation of the greatest gift ever given to all of humanity for all time and all of creation. And uh, thank goodness the kids do understand that too. But as I record this, we're uh, experiencing the first real cold winter weather of the season. And it's uh, been fun to wear the old Santa hat today in honor of St. Nick and to uh, also have it on my head to keep me from getting so cold. And I appreciate that very much. 
But uh, that, that's kind of what's going on around here under the Nine Oaks. I've moved another ton of leaves out to the street for the great big leaf sucker truck to come by and pick it up. And uh, I think I may be through the largest portion of the leaves now, and it may be done for this season apart from a few stragglers that will fall throughout the winter. But with the threat of snow and uh, a lot of hard freezing of the ground now ahead of us, it's probably time to stop that endeavor and uh, not a moment too soon. As much as I've enjoyed having trees, I may be on the brink of being weary of leaf raking. So that's life here under the Nine Oaks in Jasper, Indiana, and in Southwest Indiana. I hope it's blessed and wonderful wherever you are. If you're suffering in some way, we are together in this. We are one body in Christ, united over this very interesting and unique opportunity called the internet and podcasting, and you're not alone. We are praying for you, and you for us, I have no doubt. So rest assured that we are God's called out people on a journey together, even if we never see each other face to face until the day of his return. Let's pray. Holy God, thank you for making us one body, called out for your purpose. Thank you for giving us Jesus as the sacrifice that ends all sacrifices, the one who cancels our debt of sin to you, the one who masks our sinful ugliness so that you can welcome us into your family and Thank you, Lord, that because we are now born again into your family, we are receiving the Holy Spirit. And that Spirit is like the life's blood of the, of the community of God created by Christ, so that we are truly brothers and sisters. And so I join with my brothers and sisters right now. If they're suffering and they're having a difficult time in some way, Lord, I ask your blessings upon them. I know full well that for some, this Christmas season, this Advent season, is not as fun as it used to be. And so I join with them. I pray for the neighbor whose dear bride is suffering towards the end. I pray, Lord, for all the good and wonderful things that you will do in the lives of those who listen and seek to know your heart and mind. Bless them, Lord with a greater understanding and love for you in their hearts and minds, I pray. Amen. Well, as the fireplace crackles in the background and we enjoy the warmth of this little corner of the pastor's basement, we can study together the doctrines of the church. I want to come back to something that we talked about last week for just a moment because I felt dissatisfied with what we had uh, concluded about the Trinity. The doctrine of the Trinity, I think I explained fairly well, but I left it as a more, more of a matter of faith than anything, and I really felt that there had been something left out. So let's review, first of all, the high points of last week's lesson. The Trinity is not belief in three gods, there's only one God, and we must never stray from this. And this one God exists as three persons. And the three persons are not each part of God, but are each fully God and equally God. 
within God's one individual undivided being, there is an unfolding into three interpersonal relationships such that there are three persons. The distinctions within the Godhead are not distinctions of God's essence, and neither are they something added on to God's essence, but they are the unfolding of God's one undivided being into three interpersonal relationships such that there are three real persons. God's not one person who took three consecutive roles. There is the heresy, that would be the heresy of modalism. And uh, modalism was, was the, one of the first heresies to be countered as, a far, uh, as related to the Trinity because it was the idea that God came in one form and then another and then another, one mode of transportation, you might say. And uh, so, like, God, you know, God arrived on a bus, then God got on a train, then God got on a plane, that kind of thing. That's what modalism means. The Father did not become the Son and then the Holy Spirit. Instead, there have always been and always will be three distinct persons in the Godhead. And the Trinity is not a contradiction because God is not three in the same way that he is one. God is one in essence, three in person. Still confused? You may have to remain that way because I'm not sure I can explain it any better than that. Having explained this mystery of the doctrine of the Trinity, now let me just remind you that we came about this understanding of the Trinity uh, in part because of truths that have been translated through Scripture, which I reviewed last week, so I won't repeat them again. But in the life of the church, there is also a history, a distinct history, of wrestling with this debate. I mentioned the heresy of modalism. Uh, heresies are those things that occur uh, as a result of people trying to explain certain aspects of the spiritual uh, life of the church and the theology and doctrine of the church in a way that is inconsistent with the generally held belief. So, um, there's a certain amount of doctrine that comes from a sort of uh, uh, consensus. Now, that doesn't mean that the consensus is arrived at uh, frivolously. In fact, is there, you know, there is a general consensus, for example, about a lot of things. Uh, you know, a lot of people have a general agreement about things that they don't really understand to uh, the extent that they could explain it as accurately as an expert. But there's enough commitment to the uh, expert's ability to decide for us that we agree. So, for example, uh, the agreed understanding about the Trinity could be like the agreed understanding about how diseases is spread, for example, and the fact that during the cold and flu season that we're in now as the winter sets in, uh, there will be uh, a lot of us who, without knowing why we do it, but trusting that we've been told by reliable sources that it's wise to get a flu shot, that it's wise to cover your mouth when you cough, that it's wise to wash your hands and face regularly to keep the germs at bay. You know, we all do lots of these things because we've been told by people we trust that it's a wise thing to do, and it appears to be the right thing to do because there is uh, 
far there are far fewer epidemics than there used to be at least in the western world and so consensus based on a few people who have given us a trustworthy system of belief is as old as human society. And so when we talk about doctrine, it's like that. And when we talk about heresy, it means that someone has come up with an idea that flies in the face of the consensus that has been built. Um, And the consensus, as I said, should be based scientifically and intellectually on common values that have been discovered independently and affirmed through tests and uh, research. So, I mean, it's kind of the same way whether you're talking about spiritual things or whether you're talking about material things. Material things would be those uh, issues related to, say, public health and so forth, and spiritual things being those uh, doctrinal beliefs we have about things like the Trinity. So, there have been a number of heresies over the years that have caused great controversy in the life of the church, but they've also forced the church to evaluate what it believes by consensus and check again to make sure that there is still justification for the generally held belief. And that's kind of the way the doctrine of the Trinity has progressed over the millennia. And therefore, we find ourselves in this day and age with these generally held common beliefs about the Trinity that we can't exactly explain, but there is a belief that is assured by the truth that has been transferred over the centuries by faithful scholars and holy people as they've tried to lead us in that direction. So I I hope that clears up a little bit of of the unfinished business from last week. But uh, the reason it's so vital that I make sure that I get that right is because now when we talk about the people of God, the church, One of the most important things for us to remember is that the people of God are a community. They are in an interpersonal relationship with each other in the same way that the Trinity, the three persons of the Godhead, are in an interpersonal relationship. And so God is the first to say that we must be in community with each other, that we must be united with others who are children of God through Christ. And uh, so that's kind of the gist of this this uh, entry with a little bit of last week. And uh, the other thing that uh, I would say to you is, is that you can't really feel as though you are brothers and sisters in Christ unless you believe that the Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit, who's the third person of the Godhead, is in all of us. And it is as though we are of the same blood, in this case, the spiritual blood. And so, if you are saved and born again by the power of the Holy Spirit, then you and I, having both experienced that, are filled with the same Holy Spirit, and that truly makes you my sister and my brother. And that makes us God, God's called out people, the church. Isaiah says, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I have taken you by the hand and kept you. I have given you as a covenant to the people, a light to the nations. Well, God said that through Isaiah. And what he's saying is that's the essence of the called out nature of the church or the people of God as they were understood in Isaiah's time. 
So when you read the scriptures from last week, you got to Numbers, for example, and this is the place where the accounting of the people of God as they have now emerged from Egypt in the Exodus and are becoming the people of Israel once again, and Moses is establishing them on the national stage. As you read that and you read his uh, his uh, ten sermons to the people at the eve of his death, what did you see? Did you see how the people are uh, assembled as a particular group by God and for God's sake? And uh, do you see how Moses really professes that plainly to them? You are not cattle. You are not what Egypt tried to define you as being. You are, in fact, God's people a unique body of people set apart for a particular role in all of human history. Now, that's really quite a calling. When you read Psalm 84, did you see how the people took joy in worshiping God, feeling this unique relationship with God and this special binding uh, of the people with each other and with God and, and this unique calling and unique society of God. And uh, one of the ways that they perpetuated that was in the Psalms repeated over and over the, the actions that God took on their behalf, the relationship with God. It's so often stated in the Old Testament, remember how God led you out of Egypt and through the sea and how he destroyed the army of Pharaoh. You know, to really fully understand God's relationship with the people of the Exodus, you have to imagine a small band of people who had been dismissed as the least of the society of the world. That is to say, for example, I'm going to really go out on a limb here, and it's going to be important that those of you who have known me for a long time through this podcast or some other way, you got to hear me using an analogy here. This is an analogy to explain how this Exodus looked on the world stage, I'm going to give you an illustration. The United States is this huge North American uh, powerhouse with great industry and the most powerful army in all the world and all the military, uh, most powerful military in all the world. It is, it is the world superpower. And just outside of its borders, this little island nation called Haiti And Haiti is a poor, uh, dirty country with a lot of poverty and a lot of crime and a lot of difficulty and a lot of really horrible things have happened to them. And these people are just small and insignificant on the world stage. And right next door is this great, huge superpower. So imagine that we're talking about Egypt and the people who lived in the land of Goshen. Imagine then that Haiti produces a great leader who goes to the president of the United States, and it's even a really arrogant leader. Gee, maybe like the one we have. I don't know. And this person is told uh, to go to this president and say, you will grant the people of Haiti permission to take from your treasury whatever they want, to take the belongings of your wealthiest people and take all that they want and march off 
take boats, whatever, and go and take possession of some land somewhere else at your expense. And eventually, through a series of trials and terrors that bring the president and the people of the nation to their knees before this person and this person's God from Haiti, they agree, they acquiesce, and off goes the people of Haiti in their big boat across the ocean to who knows where and taking a huge portion of the national wealth and anything else they wanted to take with them. And after a little while, the president starts thinking about what has happened. And the president says, you know, I can't believe I caved into that kind of pressure. So he sends the entire Atlantic fleet after this Haitian exodus, and he decides he's going to destroy them in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. And miraculously, the entire Atlantic fleet is swallowed into the depths of the ocean, never to be seen again, and all the tens of thousands of sailors and military people with them. And the nation is no longer ever the great powerhouse that it once was. So that's my analogy to describe what happened to this people of Israel, this people of God uniquely set apart by God for its uh, use as God's changing instrument for the entire world. And on the world stage in the days of the Exodus, it would have looked a lot like what I just described if it had been Haiti and the United States. Now, the reason I'm taking time to share that picture with you is that you need to understand the full uh, extent to which these people had been given this sort of authority over the world stage. And in the midst of this unlikely relationship between the God of all creation and this people, there is a fear on the count on a part of all the people who encounter them after that. They remember what happened to the great nation that these people and their God defeated, and uh, these folks begin to develop a kind of uh, attitude. You know, this Haitian group, or as we now are referring in our lesson, those people of Israel start developing an attitude. They start thinking that they did that, but in fact. They are reminded constantly through their songs and through their worship, the Lord your God delivered you from the enemy. The Lord your God has set you apart, not because of your particular qualities, but because God meant to use the most unlikely people in all the world in order to demonstrate God's true greatness and the fact that if God were not with you, you wouldn't have a chance and this is what the psalmists are trying to make us understand as we read this description of how the people of God become the God, the, the God called people, even now in this conversation between brothers and sisters in Christ. He read in the Gospel of Matthew that this thing that we're talking about is referred to as the church. Now, the word church doesn't really appear that much in Scripture, but what it really is is a uh, derivation of, of, a, of a couple of terms that refer to gatherings. For, the, for example, the word synagogue is a word that means gathering. 
And uh, ekklesia is a Greek word that means the body. And so there are variations of this that become what we refer to as church. And at this point, it's important to remember that we are talking about church with a capital C. Now, when you hear me say church with a capital C, it's probably a, uh, seems a little trivial to you, but what we're really driving at is, is how the church with a capital C represents one thing in English language, while the church with a small c represents something else. If I'm writing to you about Shiloh United Methodist Church and I'm talking about going to church with me on Sunday, I would use a small c because I'm referring to church in a more general way as that building we all go to to worship. And if I say I'm going to church, uh, it means that I'm going to the church that you know that I like to go to and it's a place rather than an ideology or a bigger concept. And so, when we talk about church with a capital C, we're referring to the church universal. That is, the church that is the body of Christ. It is all who are saved by God's grace through Christ and reborn through the Holy Spirit, sharing that same spiritual blood or same spiritual nature that is given to us by new birth through the Holy Spirit. There's another word that you will hear, especially in the creed, that uh, is used to describe that, and that's the word Catholic. Now, the word Catholic is a small c word that means universal. And so, we refer to the Holy Catholic Church as the Church Universal. And the small c signifies that it's a word derived from Greek and Latin, and it is a word that tells us about the universal nature of the body of Christ, born from God's grace through Jesus Christ and sharing the same Holy Spirit. And the capital C, Catholic, refers to the denomination that we call the Roman Catholic Church. And that would be the one with the Pope and uh, all of that. So, so, these are terms that can be easily tossed about and misunderstood, and many Protestants are resistant to the use of the word Catholic in the creed because they assume that we're saying that we're committed to a uh, papist religion, you know, and uh, it's really not what we're talking about. We're referring to a small c Catholic church that we all belong to because we are all saved by God's grace through Jesus Christ, born again of the Holy Spirit and sharing that same nature in this universal small c Catholic church. Sounds like I'm beating that dog to death, but what I really want you to get from this is how important it is to understand that in the eyes of God, our denominations are pretty meaningless. In the eyes of God, our religious activity is secondary to our spiritual nature. And I believe that the God of all creation is extremely tolerant and patient in that God allows us to have so many forms of Christian religion and that God lets them exist with and through the Holy Spirit that is the one and the same in all of us. And yet there are those, I'm sure, who are practicing a form of Christianity that is probably devoid of the Spirit. But I would go so far as to say that in every church there are people in the pews who have not been born again of the Spirit. 
They have made an intellectual assent to a certain belief system. They have said, I worship here and call myself Christian because my father was a Christian and my father's father was a Christian. I worship here and believe in the same things that these people believe in because they're my friends and part of my life's meaning comes from my relationship with these people. And all of that's fine and well, but is this person born again, filled with the Holy Spirit, made new by Christ's gift of salvation and new birth? I'm not judging. I'm simply pointing out the fact that where we are one as a church universal is through the Holy Spirit. And that may be even when you fill the room with people of a variety of religious Christian traditions. So when you think about being God's called out people and one body, then you are first thinking about a relationship that began with the creation of humanity. God said, let's make a man and let's make this man in our own image. And it's, by the way, our image referring to the Trinity, these persons of the Godhead. But the other thing that happens is as soon as the man is created, God says it's not good for the man to be alone. And so God creates companions and God creates the woman and together they create a people who would become the offspring born out of God's love and God's desire that the man would not be alone. And so, we understand from the very beginning that God created people for community, for relationship with each other and with God. And uh, this relationship is unique in the people of Israel, and it is unique in the people of Christ. And we believe that while the Christians who are um, Uh, convinced that Jesus is the Messiah that all Jews have been waiting for, and therefore this answer that they've been seeking has come and will come again, we still share a certain spiritual relatedness to the people of Israel, the people who are uh, Jewish by tradition. And again, I guarantee you that you will meet those who are Jews and who have this uh, identity with Judaism as their family's uh, general religious system and their community's religious system. But to what extent there is a deep, heartfelt, and significant commitment to God in the practice of the faith in Judaism can only be known in the heart of the individual, and therefore I say that if you are a born-again Christian and you are dear friends with a truly devoted Jewish person, you are in many ways cousins. You are in many ways related to them more than not, and so this difference of opinion about Jesus separates us, but it is by God's own definition Jews and Judaism are an extension of God's set-apartness for a certain group of people to be used in a unique way in world history and in God's relationship with the world stage. And Christians have become that too, but done in a more complete way because of the Savior, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And so, as Christians, we are uniquely set apart by God for a particular purpose as well. 
In church speak, we would use the word sanctification to describe this set-apartness. Sanctification is a word that means personal holiness or holiness in general, and it's a word that uh, describes a sacred nature or set-apartness. Sanctification is a word that has the same root as sanctity or sanctuary, and all of these words describe a particular place or person or uh, organization that is set apart for a specific and holy purpose. And so it is the goal of every Christian to move towards sanctification. That is to say, I don't just want to be part of the community of Christian believers, but I also want to be ever increasing in my unique identity within and without as a Christian believer so that I am really part of the family of God. A way that you could describe that would be as this has uh, often been described as people will uh, be married for many, many years, and even though they were born from different families and born of different bloodlines, they will be married for many, many years, and they'll begin to resemble each other. And there will be a sort of, uh, of uh, kinship between a husband and wife that is visible to those who know them after they've been together for many, many years. And uh, I don't know how that happens, but I know that it's a good way to describe sanctification because there is a sense that after really embracing our relationship with God and the Holy Spirit and our relationship with Christ as our spiritual brother, we are beginning to take on certain characteristics of Christ and beginning to resemble Christ in a way that is unique. And this is the essence of the set-apart nature of the church that we're really driving at in this week's study. Belonging is not just about being a member of a church, it's about being a member of Christ's body. Now, that being said, I want to end this week's lesson by talking a little bit about being a member of a church. As you well know, if you've been listening to my podcast in all of its existence, I have said each week, at least a couple of times each week, that I do not want you to be a lone wolf and choose this podcast as your only source of spiritual activity. I don't want you to treat this podcast like it's enough, because it's not. Because even though we could claim to be a community, because I sit alone in my chair in front of a microphone and you stand alone or sit alone with your earphones listening to my voice, we are community in a very limited way. And that's not enough to be a part of a church or to call it church. Uh, part of the reason I do this podcast is to meet the needs of those who find it difficult to be at church, but it is not in, under, in any way to be a replacement for church. And so I'm asking you, I'm pleading with you to be involved in a church. And as I say every week, I know that there are many churches filled with flawed people. Can I be really honest with you? I've been a pastor for 20, almost 21 years now, and I have seen a lot of things. And I'll tell you right now, there are lots of churches out there that are churches in name only. They're filled with people who are ill-tempered and ornery and mean and and uh, very self-interested and committed to a certain social structure that works within their organization. They're not very welcoming, and they sure wouldn't want Jesus to come along and mess up their plans. Now, they're not all like that, but there are plenty of them. And if you go to one of those, I'm sorry if I just insulted you. 
And all of us commit ourselves to life in these churches in some way or another with the belief that somehow we can be the presence of God and we can make them better and somehow we can change the norms that have become so common that nobody sees anything wrong with it. But the truth is, if you're a believer in... uh, your world and uh, in in your particular experience of Christ, uh, who is not strong or not seasoned in a way where this seems to be where God is calling you to, then get away from those places. They'll make you sick. They'll hurt you. Go to some place where you feel that God is the most important person in the whole enterprise, that glorifying God is more important than glorifying individuals, where the will of God is more important than the will of a particular person or group of people. And trust me when I tell you that it's hard to find churches like that, but they're out there. And as the pastor at Shiloh United Methodist Church, I tried desperately to keep that kind of culture at the forefront of this organization, knowing that there are still pockets of resistance because it's hard to do things that don't serve us and meet our particular desires and tastes. And this struggle against sin is an ongoing problem in all people's lives as they seek sanctification. And needless to say, even organizations can do that. And what I find is that it's a refining fire that's always cooking. There's a bubbling cauldron constantly, bubbling uh, crucible constantly that is the church. And in this, there is this ever-rising dross that comes to the top, and it is to be scraped away and removed and therefore leaving behind a more pure substance. And this is the church in its essence from the beginning to the very end when Christ returns. It is a constantly refining entity that will always have its dross and always have its purity. And you've got to figure out where to fit yourself into a church so that you're not overwhelmed by the dross nor incapacitated by the heat of refinement. And with prayer, you can find it. I promise you. So, please do it. Don't hesitate. Be a part of a church community. Be patient and prayerful. And God will guide you toward or away from a place that doesn't meet your uh, spiritual needs as God has defined them. And I can promise you that you could find that at Shiloh United Methodist. We're not better than anybody else. We're not the best church in town or the best church you'll ever come across. But there is, at least at that church, because of the pastor and a lot of the lay people are committed to it, a real desire to honor God above all else and to have submitted ourselves to God's will more than human will. I hope you'll join us. You've been listening to Knowing God with Heart and Mind, the podcast that I produce each week as our virtual church classroom. It is an extension of the ministry of Shiloh United Methodist Church, which you've been hearing about, and it is my personal ministry to you and people like you. So, if this is a blessing to you, share it with someone you know, invite them to experience it too, and understand that we are Uh, doing one small part of what is the work of a wonderful 
universal God in a universal community of believers called the Church with a capital C or small c Catholic. I hope I'll get to meet you either through email or some other form of communication or maybe in person. And if you're blessed by this podcast, would you please tell me? It means so much to me to know that it makes a difference. Drop me a line. I'd be glad to hear from you. If you don't leave a comment here, then I can at least guarantee you that you can reach me by contacting me through our webpage at Shiloh United Methodist Church. That's shilohum.org. O-R-G, Shiloh, S-H-I-L-O-H-U-M dot O-R-G. Until next time, God bless you.